Leadership Show with Andy Peck. Welcome to the show that aims to support Christians in leadership to better serve Christ where he has placed them. It's obvious to say that every author comes with a background that will shape their writing and perhaps especially within the Christian non-fiction market where an author's personal story feeds in to what they write about their faith. And I'm delighted to be joined today by one of the best-known Christian authors who has written his memoir giving his journey through childhood and into adulthood. His name is Philip Yancey, and his books have sold more than 15 million copies in English and have been translated into 40 languages, making him one of the best-selling contemporary Christian authors. Two of his books have won the ECPAA's Christian Book of the Year Award, The Jesus I Never Knew and What's So Amazing About Grace, and his memoir is entitled Where the Light Fell. So, Philip, great to have you on the show. Thank you. And I'm actually in your city. I'm in London, where we're talking now. Fabulous. Yeah, we're well, great to welcome you to the UK as well. A, a very warm uh, UK, perhaps. Uh, not, not typical for British summers, sadly, but uh, there we are. Well, um, I, I was watching the temperature a week or so ago, but we we kind of landed in an interim period, and it, it's not bad out there today. No, it's not too bad. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Um, so a, a very moving book, Philip, uh, and made me shed a few tears as I was reading it through. So uh, bless you for all the honesty uh, that's in that book. That will be such a blessing to to readers. Perhaps uh, for obviously listeners who've not read the book, can you give us some kind of broad brush strokes describing your church upbringing and how it was so challenging for you and indeed your brother Marshall? Yes, well, this would have been in the 1950s when I was a child. I'm 72 now. And the United States was, uh, was quite a different place back then. I was in the South and it was before the civil rights movement. So segregation was blatant, it was legal, <laughs> it was enforced, and there was this uh, huge division between the races. My In my church, we opposed Martin Luther King and uh, people like that as rabble rousers, just trying to upset our system because we these people didn't know their place. you know. And that was kind of the doctrine that we were taught in church. My church got a lot of things wrong. It certainly got the race issue wrong. It got the, oh, I guess the feeling that we have to get God's love by being as strict as possible. And I came away with the feeling of God as a, as a scowling enforcer uh, of petty rules. You couldn't wear lipstick. You couldn't uh, play toss a baseball on Sunday and you know, all sorts of rules like that. But probably the worst thing that the church did was just give me the wrong impression of God as this killjoy who was here uh, just to make life no fun. That, that was my childhood image of God. And then later I found out that my ch some of the people in my church were wrong about key things. And that was part of the plot of the book. My father was planning to be a missionary in Africa, he and his wife, my mother. And they had already raised their support. They were ready to go. And pandemic struck, different pandemic than we've had now, the pandemic of polio. He was suddenly totally paralyzed, couldn't move anything, couldn't even breathe on his own. So he's put in one of those iron lung machines. And the people around him in the church decided it surely couldn't be God's will for this young man with so much potential for the kingdom to die. So they believed he would be healed and they removed him 
against all medical advice from the iron lung and he died. And my life really was determined largely by that decision. It, it, it determined that we were going to live in poverty the rest of our lives, never had enough money just to feed ourselves. We lived in a little trailer, a mobile home. Uh, and, and my mother was, of course, deeply affected, this young widow. She took out her disappointment, her feeling of betrayal on her two sons. I'm one of them and my brother Marshall, I tell his story, went a very different direction. And we, we lived under the cloud of that error in theology, these people who decided what was God's will and they were wrong. Wow, it is, it is a, a staggering story, uh, Philip. Um, and although, of course, you're right in, in the sense that the 1950s was a very different era, obviously within the, the, the anti-vax movement, there have been uh, pastors in contemporary America who uh, took against any vaccination and themselves, um, you know, ended up dying. You know, you would think partly because they didn't, didn't take medical treatment even today. Yeah, that puzzled me so much because, uh, my goodness, when the polio vaccine first came out, there were people who actually got a milder case of polio, but people were so delighted. There was dancing in the streets. At last, we have a preventive against this terrible disease that affects mostly children. And I don't think there was an anti-vax movement back then uh, of, of note. So it's puzzling to me and especially the anti-masking movement, you know, because there you're exposing other people, which as Christians, we should be concerned about their welfare as much as, uh, as, much as our own. So things have changed, but maybe not to the degree we want them to. And obviously, um, there was much in your childhood that could have dragged you away from the faith, but you, uh, you carried on, you went to, to Bible college, Marshall himself as well. Um, and there must have been a kind of a tension between um, that sense of the rightness of going to college, but also the uh, challenge, really, of the kind of environment that you'd grown up in. Right. I look back, and it was a, it was a complete subculture. And we, in Christians, we have different subcultures. I remember reading one of your UK authors, Jeanette Winterson, on growing up in, in Plymouth Brethren. She eventually really moved away from that. But at the time, it was a, it was a self-rewarding subculture. So uh, we could uh, do the Bible quizzing and, and learn sword drills and, and get rewards and go to summer camp. And you, you never had to be around a non-Christian, actually. Mm. <laughs> and there are parts of the United States where that's still true. In fact, in some of these southern areas, you can get a Christian yellow pages yeah. so that you can call a, a Christian plumber and a Christian electrician and maybe a Christian garbage man or something. <laughs> and so you never have to be around one of those people. But that's so different as I see it now from what Jesus set in motion because Jesus went to, uh, to people who are not like him, people who are least like him. And I think that's uh, one of the tendencies of the church. It's easier to hang around people who think like we do and and uh, vote like we do and smell like we do, but uh, that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be salt. And as people have said before, you know, salt in a salt shaker doesn't do any good. It has to be out there uh, in places that need salting. 
And that's what the kingdom of God is, is supposed to do. It grows like wheat among tares. But yeah, there are a lot of weeds out there, but let God worry about the weeds. Our job is to be, is to be the fruitful plants within the weeds, among the weeds. And, and the church doesn't always do a good job of that. My church did not. We kept in ourselves. You know, Andy, when I was writing a book on Jesus, I, I kept running into why did Jesus have so much animosity, hostility toward the Pharisees? Because the more I studied, the more I realized he was, he was pretty close to being a Pharisee. He studied the law. He was one of these, you know, serious, devout students. And in terms of belief, what do you think about God's Torah and all that? He, he, he was like a Pharisee. But yet he had a lot of opposition and a lot of hostility toward them. And finally, I decided the problem with, with Pharisees was not really what they believed. The problem was that they hung around other Pharisees all day. <laughs> they never got out of the Pharisee club. And, and so then they, as Jesus said, here you tithe your kitchen spices, your salt, your pepper. You, you know, you get, make sure God gets 10% of these. But these huge matters of justice and injustice, you don't even pay attention to. Racism, some of the things in my life. And that's what, how I look back on my church. We were so obsessed with lipstick and jewelry and skirt links and things like that, that we, we miss the racism going on in our church. We miss the lack of care for the poor. We miss these huge matters that God has called us to address. And Philip, you, um, even at college, you were, very, you had a sort of skeptical phase, didn't you, in terms of whether this was all really true and whether God was there. And yet God broke through, and there's some very powerful books mm. in, in your expression of how the Lord broke through. I don't know if you're able to share some of those. Yes, you're right. I became quite cynical and quite resistant. I, uh, my, I, my brother said to me one time, how can you tell the fake from the real? And that's the problem when you grow up in a subculture, an intense subculture like I had and other Christians grow up in, because you learn to give the testimonies, you learn to pray the prayers, you learn to do the behavior. And then, and then you learn so well that you think, am I just mimicking words? Am I just parroting things that I have learned? Or how do I know what's fake and what's real? And I went through that and decided, well, it's all fake and became quite cynical, quite a renegade in this Bible college environment and was not really seeking God. I had pretty much gone past that and, and given up on it. But there were three things that uh, softened me. The title of the book is Where the Light Fell. And it comes from a quote by St. Augustine, who said, I couldn't look at the sun, S-U-N, directly, but I could look on where the light fell. And that was true for me. I couldn't look at the sun directly. I couldn't look at God directly because my image of God was distorted. It was this angry, scowling policeman. But I looked on where the light fell. And those three things for me were the beauties of nature, classical music, and romantic love. And as I experienced those things, that hard shell that I had developed began to crack. And I realized that, that I had been misled about what God was like, that a God responsible for the beauties of this planted planet, a God who was defined by love is a very different being than I had learned in this small church growing up. And I needed to eventually climb back to where the light fell. Uh, there's an old saying from G.K. Chesterton. I'm not sure it was his originally, but he quoted it a lot. He said, 
The worst moment for an atheist is when he feels a deep sense of gratitude and has no one to thank. Yeah. And that's yeah. how I felt. I, I was grateful for these things, for where the light fell. And I realized that the church had lied to me about what God was like. And I wanted to find the real God, God of beauty and joy and love. And, and that was given to me in, in a revelation and an epiphany that I had not planned and not even desire or want at the time. But it was the gift of God that changed my life forever. Yeah, and um, certainly the moments with when you met Janet were the you know the, the tearful moments for me reading the book. It was very lovely mm -hmm. to to read how how she had you know and your connection with her was such a such a blessing to you. So uh, fantastic, um, uh, Philip. This is a, sh a show about leadership, uh, and in so many ways, the leadership of the kind of church you experienced led of course to your father's views that caused his death to your mother's outlook which had a such a suffocating and debilitating effect on on you and marshall she wanted you to be the missionary she was never able to be um i just wonder how you you feel about if you like the leadership of those kind of churches looking back well there's a danger uh, especially of a cult-like group that I was a part of, of the leader becoming a kind of autocrat. And that was true in, in my case, when the leader said, God wants your father healed. And everybody said, oh, God wants him healed. Yeah. Well, you've got to be very careful when you make a pronouncement like that. And of course, there are a lot of illustrations in the Bible. Just look at the kings of Israel and Judah. And, and leadership is a, is a gift that God gives us. But it, it, the old saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts completely. And that's been true throughout history of leaders. Even, even people who start out devout and revolutionary, often in politics and in religion, they become the dictators of the, of the next generation. So leadership is a, is a gift that God has given us, but it's a gift that we have to steward carefully and people in the church especially need to oppose it when it strays. You, you look at something like Jim Jones, you know, 900 people dying because this almost deranged person uh, leads them into this mass suicide. Why did that happen? Because nobody, very few stood up and said, this is wrong, this is wrong, don't follow this man. And we need more of those people. Do you think there was anything that could have helped that church towards a kind of saner Christianity? Is it about the theology they'd had, the training, the understanding of scripture? What would, what would be the things that might have helped turn things around back in the 50s? Yeah, I think part of it is, is that we were hanging around ourselves all day. I mean, I mentioned Jim Jones. He actually went into this obscure place in, in Latin America and moved away from San Francisco. And I think uh, that was a very telling move because he didn't want the balance that the wider culture would provide. He wanted, he wanted to control things completely his way. And in my church as well, this small little fundamentalist church, um, we had these markers that identified us. So, you know, Catholics couldn't possibly be Christians. Episcopalians couldn't, they drank whiskey, you know, we had all these these judgment things couldn't be reformed. We, we weren't of the reformed branch. And then later I, I looked up and, and realized that my faith was in, in many ways formed by the reformed people, by Catholic mystics, by 
uh, that, that diversity of sources, the rich diversity we have in church history. But I never knew that growing up. It was always our way is the only way. And you, you've probably heard the statistic, Andy, that there may be about 45,000 denominations in the world. Yeah. And, and every one of those, you know, there used to be only 44,999 and some guy, and it's usually a guy, decided <laughs> I've got more, more truth than all the rest of them, so I'm going to start my own. Yeah. And that's a danger sign. That's a real danger sign. Jesus told us his last prayer with the disciples was, God, Father, may, may they experience the same unity in the world that you and I and the Spirit have. And boy, that's a prayer that has not been answered to this point. Yeah. If I can move away from the book a little, Philip, just uh, in terms of you as a journalist, have interviewed a, a number of prominent leaders. Um, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering who particularly has impressed you that has uh, you feel perhaps has modeled a kind of leadership that uh, has really uh, had a Christ-like feel to it? Yes, uh, I may give you some answers you don't expect. Uh, I have interviewed a few United States presidents, sitting presidents, hmm. and in most cases, because I represented Christianity Today magazine, they would call me in to try to curry favor among e evangelical readers. You know? hmm. and, and the two that struck me in positive ways, frankly, were Jimmy Carter. He was from my home state of Georgia, and I knew the environment he grew up in and how Sure. risky it was for him to take some of the stances especially the racial stances he did and he was a person who really tried to put his faith into action insisting yeah. that our foreign aid programs be based on what we believed you know he, he wasn't going to go with these dictators who were good for america's defense he was he was giving out money to places who needed it and would and would use it well in many parts of africa and asia He's still viewed as, as one of America's greatest presidents for that because he opposed corruption. And then oddly enough, Bill Clinton, who was called in, what I like about Bill Clinton was that he he worked the other side of the aisle. You know, he was one of the last presidents where he would get Republicans and Democrats on the same side on issues that were good for the country. Now, as soon as a Republican or a Democrat declares a policy, the other side is going to oppose it. Yeah. So those those are two kind of unlikely people. And then uh, coming from the South, the moral leaders, Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis, again and again, the, the leaders of the civil rights movement were almost all pastors. They were clergy people. And you, you needed that faith to go out there and face what they faced, uh, German shepherds and you know, snarling at them, fire hoses being turned on them, being beaten by, by policemen being thrown in jail. What kept them going? And Martin Luther King never wavered, even as he's being beaten. He said, "My, it's it's difficult, and I'm not there yet. But my goal is to love that policeman who's beating me as much as I love my family. That's what I'm called to do. And that that's an incredible kind of moral leadership that we desperately need now." Well, thank you for those. And certainly Jimmy Carter in his post-presidential life has shown right. you know, a, a concern to uh, continue the kind of Christian outlook that um, you know, he sought to display in his presidency. 
Yes, we don't often think of humility as a virtue of leadership, but to me, it's it's a beautiful sign. I attended uh, Jimmy Carter's church and had had lunch with him afterwards, and there's a a list of responsibilities that different church members have to take up because they wanted to be a, a kind of a volunteer church. And I found the list and that particular month, the people in charge of cleaning the bathrooms in the church were Jimmy and Rosalind Carter. Oh, that's <laughs> wonderful. And, and you think of that and yeah. uh, they voluntarily signed up because, because uh, they believe Philippians too which yeah. basically said, be like Jesus, have this mind in you, which was like Jesus, who gave up being God <laughs> and yeah. came to earth. And uh, and very few puts that into practice, but he's one who did. No, that's a precious, precious thought. Um, so as we come to the end of uh, our, our chat, uh, Philip, um, obviously there's, there were sadder stories of leadership gone wrong in the Christian news. Mm-hmm. Christianity Today will have been um, covering them just as much as we have this side of the Atlantic. Um, so what kind of leader is needed as we navigate these troubling post-COVID days, Philip? Yeah, I think uh, from what I've picked up, you here in Great Britain have had some issues about that as well very yeah. recently. Uh, one thing that uh, that leaders often do as they become autocrats is think rules are for other people. That's one thing. And uh, another area that we need to really watch out for is, is just language. For instance, uh, Donald Trump, I'll say this over here, Donald Trump, when I heard him use words like deranged and human scum, he would use those words to describe his opponents, people in Congress. I thought, I, I don't care about that man's policies. He's, that's, a, that's a malignant force to let loose that kind of language in the world. That's what dictators do. And it it just changed. It has changed the dialogue. There's not any dialogue going on really between opponents in the United States. And part of it is when we demonize the other side. So that's always a danger sign when I see a a, a politician or a pastor demonizing the other side. And and we've got to follow Jesus. I mean, look at Jesus who deliberately went to the people who were least like him. I said the Pharisees hung around people who were just like him, them. Jesus went to to the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, and he risked his reputation because he said, God cares for these people. And if that doesn't fit into your set of beliefs, you need to change your set of beliefs because I came to prove that God cares about these kinds of people. And and then what I mentioned earlier, rules are for other people. Boy, we're seeing that play out, aren't we, with Vladimir Putin. There, there was a window of time when Russia really was changing, being open, being, being becoming more of a democracy. And then suddenly the window snapped shut. And there are different rules for the leaders and the Russian oligarchs and all that. Um, so those are just some of the warning signs. And they're... They're, they're current news, aren't they? Breaking news everywhere we look around us, including sadly within the church. Absolutely, yeah. Um, uh, finally, Philip, um, when you write a book, you perhaps have a, a kind of aim in terms of how your readers want to respond. I guess a memoir's a tad different to that, but I still want to ask the question, what are you, how do you hope it's received and, and what fruit might come from it as people read it? 
there are a lot of people, as you know, Andy, who've given up on the church. They may say, uh, I still have good memories about some things growing up in the church, but uh, I was wounded by the way this divorced person was treated or this gay person was treated or the way the church responded to science or something like that. They, they tell me these stories. I've been in many conversations, for instance, in an airplane where somebody says, what do you do? Well, I'm a, I'm a writer. What kind of books do you write? I explain. And they'll lean back and say, oh, well, you know, I used to be one of those Christians, but uh, they, they tell me their story, expecting me to defend the church. And instead, I sit back and laugh and say, oh, it's a lot worse than that. Let me tell you my story. <laughs> and they're a little startled. I thought you said you were a Christian author. I said, well, I am. But I'm not going to let, I'm not going to forfeit the opportunity to have a direct connection to the God of the universe because of the way somebody, some old lady treated a person in my church 40 years ago. And I, I hope that what I found is the memoir has sparked other people's stories. When people write me, they don't re usually write about my story, they write about their story. They would say, well, Mine was a little different. I grew up strict Catholic or Seventh-day Adventist or Plymouth Brethren or whatever. And they tell me their story. And I have had the, the gift, I suppose you could say, of experiencing some of the very worst that the church has to offer. And then it's some of the best. And I've spent my life as a journalist among the best. But all the time in the background, there is this, there's been looming this story that made me search for authenticity you know don't just put out propaganda don't just go with the flow reflect what everybody else says you've got to wrestle you've got to come up with with something that you can stand behind i, I always hear that phrase from my brother how do you tell the fake from the real and as an author that's what i've i've sought to do and if you read this book it's kind of like a prequel <laughs> it, it helps explain why i I keep asking books with, with questions, where is God when it hurts and disappointment with God, does prayer make any difference? Those kind of questions. Those are, those are the questions of authenticity and reality that I've explored as a writer. And this book is the story that explains the background. Well, Philip, thank you so much for being on the show today. And uh, I'm sure this is gonna be a continued uh, blessing to uh, your readership. So thank you. It was my pleasure to talk to you, Andy. That was my conversation with Philip Yancey. His book again, Where the Light Fell, published by Hodder and Stoughton. It's a powerful book, demonstrates just how powerful church culture can be. We all have blind spots and need people to challenge us from time to time. So I trust you have people around you who can say from time to time at the kind of things you say, really? And uh, help you back on track, perhaps, if you're uh, blind spots are preventing you from leading wisely. As always, there are leadership show archive recordings that you can go to. You can go to Premier's website and you can also go to the podcast provider where you're listening to this from. And there are many, many other conversations you can uh, join in with. This is Andy Peck thanking you for your time again and looking forward to uh, another show in the very near future. Bye for now. The Leadership Show with Andy Peck. To get in touch, email andy.peck at premier.org.uk.